0: And welcome to the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, a podcast all about board games, the people who love them, And a third thing that gives this title a kind of rhythmic pace that we haven't found yet, but we're zeroing in on it. My name's Quinton Smith, and I am joined today by Tom Brewster. I think normally the third thing is just board games again, isn't it? I know, but it's dumb. That's a dumb joke. And what if the people tuning into this podcast right now are here for serious discussion about board games? Mm. I want them to feel like they've come to the right place as well. They have. Maybe. Don't say maybe. Be confident. fine. They have! There we go. Today on this very serious... Board game podcast that occasionally has jokes and gags and goofs. We're going to be talking about three board games for you. We're going to be talking about Ahoy, an asymmetric pirate game from Later Games, the makers of Root. We're going to be talking about 3000 Scoundrels, a game that has literally 3000 Scoundrels in it. And we're going to be talking about Dead Reckoning, uh, a pirate game. That, and there, there is a theme on this podcast. There's a theme. Yeah. There's a theme. We've thought this through because Ahoy is a game about pirates. Yeah. 3000 Scoundrels is a game with. Translucent cards that are like you put them on top of other cards. Yes. Great job, great job on that one there. Yep. And then Dead Reckoning is pirates and it's translucent cards. My goodness! Boom! Mike dropped all the way. There we go. That's like the most cohesive theme we've had to a podcast ever, and it's barely a theme. Once again, yeah, you're really not not selling this podcast to people who are new. If you're new. Let me tell you, strap in, because there's going to be some discussion of these games that quite literally goes to a marginally higher level than you were expecting.
1: <laughs> we're going to kick off this podcast with a little chat about Ahoy, which is a pirate-based, asymmetrical, skirmishy, battle-y, war-y, game-y kind of thing, area control
0: thing, from later games. Tom... I'm losing my mind. Root, the asymmetric game of Woodland Warfare, was considered one of the greatest board games the last few years. The same designers, publishers and designers, later games, then released Oath, which you said is one of the greatest board games ever made. Now we have another four-letter board game, Ahoy!, I'm ready for you to tell me this is one of the greatest things you've ever played. It's alright! <laughs> That's going to be <laughs> potentially disappointing to some people. Uh, wh- what do you do? Why is it only alright? Tom,
1: my interest is peaked. So I should make a clarification here that whilst Ahoy is from the same design studio, it's from Later Games, and it's illustrated by the same artist, Carl Ferrin, as Root, it's a different designer. This one is designed by Greg Loring-Albright, so it's not the same designer as Root and Oath. It's kind of like similar in a very similar place to a game like Forts, which is also from later games, also features a lot of the trappings, but from a different kind of design ethos. And it is also fittingly in a little smaller box. It's kind of a smaller proposition. I think this game is interesting because it's boiling down the asymmetry of later's more complicated games, such as Root and such as Oath, into something that's a bit more direct. Let me set Ooh, the that scene. Sounds,
0: that sounds quite good.
1: Yeah. This is a pirate game that's got four factions you've got the bluefin squadron they're the sharks they're big they've got a massive boat they've got twice as many cannons as everyone else they've got tiny little shark fin pieces that they dot around this ocean that you're going to be building out of these tiles and they're going to be very good at sort of kind of uh, to already get a bit inside baseball they're kind of like the cats from root they dominate the board to start with but you can chip away at that rule pretty easily what's the second faction then who's going to be fighting them it's the mollusk union (laughs) they've got a variety of strange little boats but they actually don't have the sort of things that patrol in the water like the sharks do instead they have comrades who you park on islands to sort of rest control that way They've got a much more crafty approach to the game where they have lots of cards they can play to get themselves out of sticky situations. They don't have the same out-and-out, cannon-blasting, fast-moving power as the Sharks do, but they're a little bit sneaky, a little bit crafty. Quince, what do you think the
0: third faction is? Probably uh, some other kind of pirate boat that goes around leaving things on islands by the sound of things. It's a smuggler. It's a single smuggler.
1: And what they'll do is they'll pool around between islands, picking up cargo and dropping off cargo. So whilst the Bluefin Squadron and the Mollusk Union are playing an area control game, the Smuggler is playing a little pick up and deliver game, which is kind of cute. But what's the fourth faction, Quins? I bet you're so excited to learn what that one is.
0: is It's another (laughs) Smuggler! (laughs) Okay, okay. So you're telling me, hang on, you're telling me, Tom, you expect me to believe this is a little pirate game that comes in a small box with two players who are fighting a kind of, they're warring for control of these islands. Yes. And then there's two more players that are playing a kind of separate game, but on the same board at the same time. Yeah. And that's crazy, isn't it? Interesting. I don't know. I I like the sound of this so far, but you've told me it's only okay. Yeah. So there's a
1: really interesting thing going on here where these two main factions are doing this big area control. The smugglers are playing, pick up and deliver, and they have this little point of interaction in the middle where the pick up and deliver faction will actually make areas of the board more valuable for the area control factions by picking up and delivering to those islands. So like you've got some cargo. It needs to go to the shark, big fortress island. You drop off that cargo there and now that island is worth a little bit more for endgame scoring, which is kind of cute. You have this weird little, you know, push and pull. And that's also interesting because the smugglers are going to bet on who is going to control those regions at the very end of the game.
0: That sounds neat. Do the smugglers have a way of affecting who is going to control those islands? Can they can they sort of like involve themselves in the war game?
1: Kind of. The smugglers have access to the various different combative abilities that the area control factions do as well. They just don't have as much of them. They have cannons, but they're not as good. They don't have access to the cards that the Mollusk Union have. They don't have the ability to pick up as much crew that's going to let them do more damage. They're not really a Biffin faction and this actually creates kind of this core problem that i found with ahoy which is it's the same problem as having the vagabond in route where the way that you
0: stop the smugglers is just by biffing them on the head every few turns to just Just slow them down Take in some of your turn where you want to do cool things and instead you have to go and lamp which is british for punch (laughs) another player to prevent them from winning
1: yes exactly you just have to go over to them and just ruin their day for a little bit which is especially cruel considering that i think that one of the ways you can pitch ahoy to people is by saying hey there's this big mean area control game that two people are playing and the other two people they might not like area control as a mechanic they might not like being mean so instead they get to play a game that's more sort of slow and economic and and sort of more puzzly and thinking in that sense but then they still do occasionally get caught in the crossfire of an area control game and they don't
0: have the tools to defend themselves. They do just get biffed. Um, I mean, I understand that later games want to publish something that can be played at, you know, two players or three players or four players. But goodness gracious, Tom, we just got back from Shucks, the Shut Up and Down convention, Mm -hmm. where you got to see in person for the first time, Panic on Wall Street, a party game where half of the players are selling stocks and half of the players are sort of trying to, are are stock traders and trying to make money. But there are two winners in that game because the game says, you know what, we're just going to have people who sell stocks competing with one another and people who trade stocks competing with one another. And while those games cross over there are two winners because ultimately each side doesn't care who wins on the other side yeah. and that feels great and I've never seen it replicated mm. what if I mean obviously I'm, the later games have all kinds of complicated reasons for designing Ahoy the way they have yeah no I, I
1: agree I think that, that as a concept it's it's definitely really interesting but I do think the problem comes from those two games interacting in some ways but not in others and it also comes from the fact that one of those games is just fundamentally much more fun than the other yeah. like the thing that I like you know I say Ahoy is a, it's a good game it's good I think it's fun, it's just not great. It's not exceptional because it has to struggle with this sort of balancing act of half the factions just not being fundamentally as fun as the other. Because the area control battle bit is quite peppy and light in a way that I wasn't expecting. It's not this big, crunchy tactical thing. Ships move really fast, they roll big dice. It's just, it's more popcorn than I thought it would be. Um, Mm. And and it's a great shout if you want to introduce people to asymmetry, but I just, I wasn't sold on the game after that introduction. The thing that it does do that's really nice is it gets itself to the table in a way that's much, much easier than something like Root. It's so much easier to teach. The the core actions are very, very easy to pass and the differences aren't as huge. Um, But... It just feels a little bit flat once you've got past that. It lacks that sort of like really aggressive texture that the other uh, later games games have.
0: Hmm. Who would you say
1: it's for? I would say it's for people who
0: <laughs> here <we go>. want
1: <laughs> to, to... B- be you, You're not. That's not going to be the end of that sentence. That's roughly, a here we go. a board game with... Oh. Asymmetry, oh. but not too much. And <laughs> <is>. they oh. <laughs> also won't
0: play it forever and they're kind of okay with that. I'm going to fire you. Okay, well, <laughs> you you've landed You landed that. You stuck the landing. Let's just move on and put whatever that just was behind us.
1: Quins, do you want to tell me all about 3,000 Scoundrels by Unexpected
0: Games, designed by well, Corey Kaneska? I had a whole joke lined up that you're going to go, Quins. do you want to tell me about 3,000 Scoundrels? And I'd go, Phew, we only have time for about Five Scoundrels. So wait, hold, do you want right. to do There's that some... one then? Do you want to just do that from the top? No. Do you want to just hello. Do OK, now? so 3,000 Scoundrels is from Unexpected Games, uh, the design studio founded by Corey Kaneska, uh, who worked on some of the most beloved games from Fantasy Flight uh, of recent years. And Unexpected Games, we're still trying to figure them out. They published hmm. The Initiative, a kind of fascinating storytelling, code-cracking comic book spy game, which, uh, Tom, I, I believe you're on the record as saying was pretty good. Uh, no. Matt's on
1: the record as saying that's pretty good. I'm on the record of being in the video.
0: Okay, right. Well, then, then Unexpected Games put out a board game called Voices in My Head, which I believe, Tom, you're on the record as saying is straight up bad. I did not enjoy that game
1: at all, but it is interesting. It, that's the thing. It is unexpected
0: um yeah okay <laughs> well now we have a game another game that's pretty unexpected as we continue to try and puzzle this this design studio out so now cory caneska has brought us a new game called 3000 scoundrels which is a game where you will be playing cards and making cards that's that's exactly what it sounds like in order to get loot in an alternate history wild west basically imagine the wild west but every fifth ass asset has an, an anachronism on it like a, a phone gun, and you're what if what if a cowboy had a telephone? Imagine that. What if a prospector had a laser arm? What if you a know? rancher had cut the rope on his iPad? What if a milkmaid had an NFT? <laughs> is basically <laughs> where we're at. So um the, the main thing you're gonna be looking at in this game is a little picture of a of a Wild West town, um, but it's got cards on it. Um, and each of those cards represents a safe, and all the cards are face down. So, the main way you're going to be getting points in 3,000 Scoundrels is by robbing safes. Um, But first, you probably want to look at what's in them, um, so you know what you're getting because some of these safes are straight up bad and will not help you and some of the safes have tremendous quantities of loot in such as when I played with Tom the one that he scouted and he peeked in that safe Stop and it. I yanked it away from don't him don't tell them and how much it that, was worth that safe was like maximum value it, was in the game. The most... it won me the game oh. Uh, It was the best save. uh, Okay, so um, more practically, the way you take your turn in 3000 Scandals is kind of weird, and I'm going to try and rush through it, um, because I'll tell you what, Unexpected Games have published a pretty unexpected game. It's kind of an unusual thing to play, and we liked some things about it quite a lot, and some things about it not at all. So it's kind of a chore to explain, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> let, me, let me let me try and go through it. So every player in this game has a little deck of cards with numbers ranging from 0 to 6 and then there's also an ace. Don't ask questions. We have to get through the rules of explanation. On your turn, you are going to be playing one of these cards face down to the player board in front of you. So, for example, uh, playing, I'm going to invent this, but it's something like playing a four lets you peek at one of those safes and playing a five on your turn instead lets you steal a safe, whether you've peeked at it or not. Now, here's the catch. In 3,000 Scoundrels, getting a bit of that scoundrel theme, the card you play face down doesn't have to be what you say it is. So maybe you play a card in the four slot and peek at a safe, but secretly you played a two. Now, here's one of the best bits of this game. A player can at any point go... I think you're full of garbage. I think you're lying. I think that card you just put down is fake. And then they will send off one of their little outlaw tokens and sit it on your card. Then at the end of the round, you reveal all the cards you played and every outlaw that caught you out... Um, is it, like if, if a player says, I don't think that's a three, put a scoundrel out, then you flip it and it wasn't a three, that player, and this is where the scoundrel theme starts to fall apart, that player's gang gets a slightly higher reputation. <laughs> um, and for some reason in this world, these gangs of outlaws, we are care about what people think of us, I guess. Um, the reputation and is also the cops, I presume. I don't know. I... Oh, maybe because we are sending these these outlaws. Do get also, but the thing is, if you think of also first of all, what's happening in this theme? <laughs> like, do you, you send an outlaw to 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 check if they were legally stealing a safe? Right, and it's like, oh yeah, no, they said they were stealing a safe, and they were. Ah, oh, no. <laughs> now, and actually, if you if you get that bet wrong, so if you say I think this player's lying and they weren't, your outlaw goes to jail. Yeah. So like the theme is kind of like coming apart at the hinges here. But um, that's kind of weird because um, the other aspect of this game, at the end of your turn, after playing a card and doing one of these actions, which might be like get some money or peek at a safe or steal a safe, that money you're collecting can be spent on scoundrels. So there's another kind of card play happening in 3,000 Scoundrels. Um, And that card play involves uh, creating cards, which I teased earlier, um, from cards that are partially translucent acetate. So... Every time a new scoundrel comes into the scoundrel shop, the saloon. Sometimes, sometimes Tom, I just say sentences, and I'm like, "What am I doing with my life?" <laughs> um, and this is one of those times. But yeah, so the saloon, sorry, yeah, scoundrel shop, whatever, where you're where players choose scoundrels from. Um, at the end of every player's turn, you're either going to buy or bin a scoundrel, a scoundrel from the shop, and then that then you have to bring in a new scoundrel. And the way you bring in new scoundrels is you take a card back, which is printed like a regular card, and then and on that card is printed a scoundrel in their pants and with one arm sticking out. <laughs> and you're going to be like, this is disturbing and weird. And it is. Mm-hmm. I actually recommend you Google it, because it's kind of alarming to look at these cards. Um, and then you take a card, which is a piece of translucent acetate, with some clothes and a second arm printed on it, and you slide that into a card sleeve to cover up the other card back. Yeah. Um. So, you know, you have a card that might say like, you know, uh, Prospector, and it's a Prospector holding a pickaxe in their pants. And then you slide over one of these acetate cards, and it's like, Cyborg Prospector. <laughs> and then now it's a prospector, but it, oh, they're not wearing pants anymore because the, the the clothes on the acetate showing, like, a cyborg's outfit have slid onto the prospector. So now you have this double-layer card that is a cyborg prospector. And the reason the game is called 3,000 Scoundrels is there are 3,000 possible variations of this. We And some of these are hilarious. Like, Tom, you were really big into... Um, One of the jobs someone could have is just horse. Yes. So, you know, you have like, you know, outrageous and then you draw the card. It is outrageous horse. Okay.
1: the horse asset just covers the entire section of the card that had a person in it previously.
0: Yes. So it's like that person in their pants is now inside the horse's belly. (laughs) It's very funny. But also, you know, you can have like depressed gambler Mm. or like filthy photographer. (laughs) <laughs> that was one we had, wasn't yep. it? Or like sleepy um, journalist you know, was another. I think I, I want to say anxious journalist, yeah. <laughs> um, but then the, it's kind of there's like some mechanically or like in an abstract design sense, the way these cards work is quite clever because you have oh god, I'm going to try and describe this in a way that's interesting, and I apologize to the people at home that it's not, but. The value of a card is a combination of both layers of the card when you're assembling it. So, like, you might have a gambler who's worth quite a lot of money, but then it comes with a piece of acetate on it, an adjective, basically, that is worse. And then as you slide that card over, there are sort of weird bullet holes on the Mm. acetate that will cover up some of the price but it means there's really wacky variation and some of the scoundrels are just straight up better than the others. I mean, and also, long story short, all these scoundrels have powers that basically trigger when you do things like if you play a two on your turn, this scoundrel happens and they all have like weird effects like gaining more money or recovering your outlaws from jail or peeking at safes or swapping safes for other safes. Um, uh, I, The final, God, that rules explanation took absolutely ages. <laughs> but the, the, that kind of feels fitting from Unexpected Games. It's like, you know corey bless him is gonna give you something that's like okay how do we even begin to describe this this is unexpected but yeah the last mechanic i will say because it is genuinely my favorite part of the game and it had some discussions around our table as we were playing 3000 Scandals to be like, could this have just been the game by itself? Mm. Is that when you peek at safes, you have tokens. So the safes range in value from two to seven. So you can just steal safes, but generally what you're going to want to be doing is peeking to look for a high value safe and then stealing it. After you peek at a safe, you can place a token on it. You must a place a token from- on it. Oh, you must, there we go. And you have a limited number of these tokens and so they range in value from one to seven. Um, and so over the course of the game, you could realistically be... Tagging these safes with exactly the number they have, and if you do that, if you peek at a safe and it's a three, and you put the three on it, anyone who then steals it, if because you tagged it with the value that is what that safe was, it is worth one more. So a three tagged with a three is actually worth four. However, what I saw Tom do, and this was my just this is the, the by far the greatest moment I had in the game. Tom <laughs> peeked at a safe for way too long thought about it for way too long and then tagged it with a three <laughs> and i went i'm absolutely robbing that and picked it up immediately um yep. and sure enough it was it was, it was the a seven eight. Safe in the game yeah
1: yeah yeah
0: yeah, yeah, terrific yeah, yeah, fun. yeah, yeah and but yeah, yeah. but genuinely just a great just a, a great example of a memory game like yeah there aren't many board games that play with the uh occasionally unpleasant uh mechanics of memory games mm. but in 3000 scoundrels i was weighing up i want to do this cool bluff but also I'm a real idiot and like, I'm going to forget what these steps are. So it's like, do I want to tag them with semi-realistic numbers just so I remember? Mm. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I found that part
1: of the game—the bluffing on the actual safes—as being really interesting because the incentive to mark correctly contrasts with the value of that information to the other players. I that that part of it is really nifty. I actually found the bluffing on the cards that people play at the bottom of their player mm. board to trigger their abilities. I found that far less interesting, especially in our yes. sort of short two-round game where the bluffing is—it's—it's it's almost entirely a vibes thing, right? Like, yeah especially in the first round when you've drawn your first set of cards, there is no possible way you can know whether a player is lying or not on any of those cards, unless you have a scoundrel that lets you peek at a card, which do exist. Um, but it kind of takes a while for your little engine, your little tableau to ramp up, to gain that kind of edge. Um, so it felt like a little bit of, you know, completely sort of guessing in the dark
0: yeah you did need to also the only times I would feel semi-confident about guesses is like if someone had recruited a lot of the uh, aforementioned 3000 scoundrels that like triggered when you played a three Mm. the game isn't very generous about like always ensuring you have a three in your hand so if someone's engine points towards this happens when you play a three then they play a three I'm like that's probably a lie Um, but yeah as you say it takes time to spin up but I do think that heart of 3000 Scoundrels of playing cards and then calling people's bluff on whether that card is what they say which kind of feels a bit like poker and then peeking at safes and tagging them and stealing them out from other players I feel like there's a really good card game in 3000 Scoundrels but what you're buying when you buy Three Thousand Scoundrels? That card game is un- undeveloped and like 30 of of what you're actually doing in the game. Yes. So I I can't say I would I personally would recommend Three Thousand Scoundrels, which is unfortunate because. I think it has a lot of cool components. I think it has a lot of cool ideas and it has also a lot of really quite cool art. Mm, yeah, I think that those um the cards that you are crafting, the things that you sort of
1: slide those, you know, little character backs into the acetate sleeves. I think those are they're full of personality. They're funny. We were always laughing when a new one turned up. And they do have like some, you know, semi-interesting abilities. They're just not quite interesting enough because the game under it isn't exactly thrilling. Um yeah, and um, I, I don't, do I, you that, know, I don't want to do a disservice to the fact that those cards they have so much more personality than a lot of other sort of you know things that we see, including Dead Reckoning, which we'll get to in just a moment, little teaser. Yeah, there. yeah,
0: it's definitely the most characterful example of card crafting mm. that we've seen. Um, I want, I wanted to know because you said that Voices in My Head didn't really work as a game. Was there any element to the design of Voices in My Head, which was the previous game from Unexpected Games and Corey Kineska, that, um and Three Thousand Scoundrels, because both the games you came away with from saying like I don't know if I'd want to play that again. I
1: think that voices in my head had a lot of stuff going on. My memories of it are a little bit hazy, so this is probably, you know, if people wanted to know about those thoughts, going back and listening to that podcast would probably make more sense than this, but in general the thing I found frustrating was that there were some interesting ideas in the fact that you had these multiple conflicting voices in the head of this man who was taking the stand uh for some unknown crime um (laughs) (laughs) that were really you know that part of things where you're sort of trying to push and pull the narrative based on what part based on what your voice is and some of those voices work together nicely and some of them are directly combative so you could have a fully cooperative version of that game without really knowing it or you could have a fully versus version of that game without really knowing it either that Idea is really interesting, but then it was on top of this like strange area control dexterity game that didn't quite work. And I think that's maybe this sort of hook of like these past two unexpected games games that they're trying to merge these two different styles of game or two different ideas together into yeah, something. Yeah. And one of them is normally stronger than the other, and and you'd rather just play that game than both games at the same well, time. Well, that
0: was that was kind of true of the initiative as well, right? I haven't played it, but the first release from Unexpected Games, the Initiative, combined like this sort of moving like running around a house like burgling board game with a code cracking game which is what we usually see from party games right yeah and i i've heard
1: you know matt's review of that very much made it clear that like the initiative is a game that isn't necessarily for him it's not for us it's not necessarily a game that is going to like really appeal to like quote-unquote hobbyist gamers. But Matt's stance with that was, this is just a a game that is so interesting in terms of its ideas about code cracking for people who are new to the hobby. It was like, he wanted to be the kids that are discovering this game for the
0: first time. Um, Well, I can certainly say that 3000 Scoundrels was not for me, but I don't know if this is a game for families either.
1: No, I I don't entirely know if if it's, I don't know who it's for. It's kind of a tricky little game to put down because it's, I think it, ran sort of like too long to be this light, quippy, like quick bluffing game, but then the powers aren't interesting enough to create a, a sort of engine building experience. So it's kind of this halfway house, a little bit undercooked, didn't quite work.
0: Tom! Y- yeah? Tom! Yes. Tom! Y- yes. John D. Clair's made a new board game again. <laughs> wow. uh, the designer who seems to work almost exclusively with uh, AEG Games has published all kinds of games that shut up and sit down, sometimes likes, we sometimes do like. So let's let's blast through them real quick. Space Base, weird, like, uh, slot machine generating space game involving a lot of dice. We quite like that. Cubitos, another game about rolling dice, but sometimes these these dice are like abstract cartoon animals. Tom, you quite like that, right? Yeah. But now you're, yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. And then Ecos, First Continent, we thought that was super bizarre. uh, And we didn't really (laughs) like that at all. Then there was uh, Mystic Veil, which he made out, which again involves multi use cards. We didn't quite like that. There was uh, Edge of Darkness, which we also weren't so hot off. And now he's made another one. Doesn't he know that we have families to see? We've got meals to cook. We can't be sitting around <laughs> bloody reviewing all your games, John DeClaire. But no, John Declare has made another new game. It's called Dead Reckoning. And as we said at the start of the podcast, this has the weird acetate card crafting from 3000 Scoundrels and the pirate theme of Ahoy. Yes.
1: Yeah, it does. It's a big wide ocean 4X game is what I put in my
0: notes. I don't know what that means, wow. but it's what it is. Explain forex x for the people at home who are not huge dorks like you. Explore. Yep. Exploit. Yep. Exterminate. Yep. That's one of expand? them. Expand. Y- yes. That feels so the like same as explore. You, would, you had no confidence there, which I think is a ruse. I think you knew what those words are. You just wanted to sound like you had to reach for it. So yeah, so I like, didn't listen, sound like
1: a dork. Dweeb.
0: Yeah. So uh, this is a genre of games that you might trace back to things like, you know, civilization, although the genre tends to relate to, although the genre tends to be in outer space mostly. But now you're pirates, you're pirates who are going to be going off and exploring a, a whole bunch of face down tiles representing the ocean. You're going to be building up a kind of economic engine. Maybe you're going to be fighting other pirates and the game is going to take absolutely ages, come in a huge box and be very, very expensive. Uh, Tom, would you like to talk about the game in a bit more detail? Yeah,
1: sure. Um, so, yeah, Quinn's is right, you're going to be sailing out into the ocean, you're going to be discovering islands, you're going to be putting influence onto those islands to control them. You're then going to be using that influence for those islands to shift goods around, to try and buy low and sell high. You don't do much to that, you more, more just sell them. You're going to be getting money, which you're going to be spending on upgrades to your crew, which is actually one of the most interesting systems in the game, so we'll save that for just a second. You'll be battling other pirates, which involves slamming a load of cubes into this absolutely garish massive <laughs> pirate themed dice tower thing that isn't really a dice tower because it doesn't have any baffles in it which quince was really fixated on for the whole time we played it
0: i just want a dice tower that will make me feel like the dice tower and shogun did one day and no one no one can provide it one day
1: but all of this is driven by this card driven system where you've got these cards that are like in 3000 scoundrels like in mystic Vale, made up of various sheets of clear acetate atop a sort of quite empty card back so it means that you have this empty card back that you then fill with all these different icons based on how you're sort of building up that character and that part of the game is quite strong. You have these various different characters on your ship. Everyone starts with exactly the same set of cards that you're then going to quietly customize and tinker with over the course of the game. Because not only do you add new sheets onto the cards to improve them and give them access to more stuff, you also are going to actually individually level those cards, which might be what gives you access to entire systems that you didn't have access to before. There's something really strange about the fact that the only way So when we played this game, Quinn's described the ship upgrade system to me, which is where you can change your ship to have like bigger sails or better cargo holds or more cannons. That system, you only get to unlock that when you upgrade your bosun to like be level three, which could take quite a while and you might not even do it. There's a whole sort of sector of this game that you might only access if you really want to do it. And that part of the game, I thought was really kind of interesting that you can kind of tailor your crew towards what play style you're interested in. Outside of that, I wasn't entirely convinced of Dead Reckoning as an experience, because I didn't necessarily find the game to be
0: piratey enough. It's it's oh, I don't know. Like I keep thinking back to a game that is like certainly showing its years now, but it's Merchants and Marauders, mm. which is a game of you know like pirates in the Golden Age of Sail in the Caribbean, and it sort of <laughs> it it has a really really simplistic approach to um, to piracy, which is basically. But, but ultimately, I think it works extremely well, which is players can sail around, and they're picking up cargo, they're buying it, and then they sail somewhere else, and they sell it. They can pick up cargo, and then they can sell it. And if they ever get bored of doing that at any point, they can go up to another player and fire all of their cannons at them, <laughs> and then you permanently are changed from a merchant into a pirate. Mm. And so it's a game where, like, usually it, what works out quite well is you know, you have two, you know, you might have two pirate players that are sailing around playing a kind of nautical Grand Theft Auto <laughs> where, like, they become increasingly wanted by uh, deadly NPC pirates who are, or NPC ships that are sailing around trying to arrest them. And then you have a couple of players trying to avoid them, trying to get faster, bigger cannons. Um, Dead Reckoning seems to want to, oh goodness, you can build your boat in so many different ways. The book actually, the manual talks about multiple different paths forward, which can be attacking other players or developing islands or exploring or um, collecting and trading goods, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And so, the, and but it's not even like what kind of character class do you want to be? It's how do you want to build your ship in this um sort of kind of uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say torturously complicated um uh, sort of engine system that John Declare has made. The first time that we played this, my nose was in the manual. I, I hate this so much. You you saw every time that you asked about a rule, my, my entire crest fell. I became crestfallen, <laughs> and, and I picked up the manual again to thumb through it and look for the rule that we were talking about. This is a very th- Choppy is how I would describe the rules of this game. Well hey, because it's kind of like watery. Yeah, no. Basically. Yeah, that's that's yeah. good. That's good. I think that there's actually maybe I was trying
1: to think about why this didn't quite work for me. And I think it might be because the most exciting part of the game is the crew and the ship and upgrading those aspects. But so much of the game is actually anchored. Well, hey. See? Hey. That's another little boat thing. To islands and territory and areas of the board. So you have this like large swath of options and, and combat isn't necessarily a particularly exciting route to go down, you end up with this game feeling like much more like an economic Euro game where you're building infrastructure rather than necessarily being pirates upgrading a ship, you know, sort of altering your vessel and going where the wind takes you. It's a game where you you run the East India Trading Company rather than I was the about pirates to say, fighting yeah,
0: them. Yeah. Right? Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. But no, it's 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 that thing that I that always drives me up the wall in board games, which is you know, we generally speaking, this was a, this this way of thinking was a lot more prevalent in about 2011. But you have these two schools of design, which is you know, which used to be called Ameritrash, of which is you know, theme stories, rolling dice, lasers. Mm-hmm. So- I mean, it's the laser prospector we were just talking about. That's a Maritrash. <laughs> Um, and they tend to be extremely swingy and tell great stories. And then you have a kind of um, uh, well, what's known as a Euro game, which tends to be quite economic. It tends to be about allocation of resource and it tends to be quite um, arithmetical and fair because mm. players are crunching and doing all these complicated calculations to work stuff out. And over the last 10 years, the like designer board gamers like you and me and the listeners of this podcast have realised that there are great games from both sides of this divide. But now we have designers trying to combine the two and you get it in games like Dead Reckoning. And I just find it absolutely infuriating. The idea that... Oh, I mean, you cannot have sort of like swingy crazy dice combat when I am also, if I'm doing an algebra puzzle and you're giving me a wedgie at the same time, that <laughs> simply doesn't feel good. And I found the random chance in Dead Reckoning, the random islands you encounter, the random cards that your deck spits out, the random things your opponents might decide to do, sort of absolutely flew in the face of trying to calculate my way to an economic victory. Mm. In, you know what? I, I'm. I think there's like there's a lot to really like in the box. Like
1: you have this very gorgeous yes. kind of v- ridiculous production, and it's admirable having so much ambition into being able to sort of sculpt your crew and your vessel. It just feels that you're doing it on top of this sort of like quite blank slate Eurogame-y experience that's lying underneath it. But the thing that I'm interested in, right, and this is a weird little puzzle that I need to solve in my own brain in terms of coverage. I wonder if the... So there are some little expansions and little leg, semi-legacy bits and bobs that have been added to Dead Reckoning. They were part of the Kickstarter. I wonder if those are going to inject the sort of needed personality, a mirror dice chucking story-based stuff that's maybe going to pull the players away from thinking about it as a sort of economical puzzle and more into the stuff that's going to feel a bit more piratey, a bit more excitingly sandboxy.
0: You know what I mean? Well, if you. Yeah, I do. And it, it's very peculiar to play a big, heavy game like Dead Reckoning. And ordinarily, if there's. Because Dead Reckoning ships with these legacy expansions that add things like, you know, sea monsters and special pirates and special islands and all kinds of fantastical things to discover in a game where discovery is literally one of the ways you can win. By discovering new islands, you get. Um, you get nudged towards winning the entire game. Um, So, but very peculiar for you and I to be looking at those legacy expansions and thinking, oh, there might be good stuff in here. But the reason that we didn't go on to play them is because both times we played this game, we were exhausted afterwards. Mm. The idea of making the game more complicated and adding more rules interactions is, uh, it's, it's a lesson for designers and one that we've learned a few times over the years that, Legacy is a thing that you inject quickly to a game that's already good. You can't have a game that feels kind of drab and then expects players to find the color later, right. No, it's legacy can't be something that fixes a game. It has to be something that elevates a game that's already working. And when you talked about you when you talked about sort of um this game having a lot of blank space, it it, it triggered my memory of it. The th- I found something quite peculiar about deck reckoning, which is all the different aspects of the game, like these crew cards that you're upgrading, or the islands you're exploring, or the economic game that you're developing all feel like they're creating space for one another, but no one of them is holding the game up, right? Mm, sure. Like your crew, your your cards are so so blank and and so devoid of character, but that's fine because you're gonna be exploring stuff, right? Well, no, the islands are actually kind of drab and there's not anything particularly exciting on them, but that's okay because we've got this economic game, but then the economic game doesn't really work, presumably because card crafting and deck building is supposed to be something that carries the game. And I don't know if any one thing is that is carrying the game. Yeah no sure i can see that and i think that the the personality
1: that the cards have is kind of undercut by the fact that ultimately like on your second or third game you see that you know you're on the first game it might be really exciting that your crew member has a bunch of sail symbols on them you kind of have this thematic idea of like this guy being your yeah, big chief sailor boy. Wow. That was terrible. But that could be your sort of, you know, you have this picture in your head of who this person is. And then by your second or third game, you then end up being like, I have a three sail sailor, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. And I wonder if some of the, the sort of the packs and the changes and the extra stuff might change that. And maybe, maybe people should let us know in the podcast comments, if they've enjoyed that stuff. But ultimately. I'm not jumping to play the game again, which is maybe the bigger problem here. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I don't know if there, uh, people in the comments will definitely correct me, but I don't know if there has been a game in Shut Up and Sit Down history that hasn't worked, and we've hoped that whatever's contained in the sealed envelopes of an expansion might fix it, and right. then we've actually gone, wow, tell you what, by game four, this really takes, I mean, like, <laughs> it might take you a while to understand the mechanics of the game, but in Dead Reckoning, it's 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 a game we don't particularly like, and then we hope the injection of more more stuff onto it would fix it, and I don't, I think that might be optimistic. That got a bit dour, didn't it? All those people at the start of the podcast, where I tease, you know, like slightly heavier conversation about board games than they were expecting, they've had their fill. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about something a bit more fun. Let's talk about the video that you and I finished filming today oh, and yeah. that went up on the YouTube channel yesterday tom and i just did the board game review video equivalent of a triathlon except there were four games so it was a fourathlon and that joke is actually in the video um we reviewed the new city series from queen games this is a series of games i've been excited about for a really long time one of the greatest designers of all time, Steffen Feld. he has a lot of games that were out of print that you haven't been able to buy, sometimes for upwards of like five, six, seven years. Um, and Queen Games has republished a lot of them and a new Steffen Feld game called Marrakesh in a game themed around great cities of the world. So Hamburg is in there for some reason. And then there's <laughs> Amsterdam. Uh, why am I blanking on the third one? New, new York, York City. City. And then uh, Marrakesh. And next year, they're going to be doing a Kickstarter for two more games, Vienna and Cusco, Which you're not going to receive. Which I I, I might well ask for it, Tom. I might well ask for it. Um, We had a lot of fun filming this video. Even if you... you I think if you look at Shut Up and Sit Down video reviews, rarely you'll have fun um, looking at this review of the City series that, as I say, you'll find on our YouTube channel. Um, Because these games are at once really pretty great mm-hmm. and also we have some pretty big problems with them yes um it's, what, what do you think we should tease on this podcast i think if
1: you want to hear about four games that are really quite good like every single one of them is good i'm quite excited for you to ask for numbers five and six in the city series because we'll get to sit down to two really good games even the worst well, of fun. these games yeah. i still had a pretty grand time playing but Oh,
0: <laughs> we we only recommend two of the four of them, mm-hmm. really, and even then is with a big it's a caveat, big, which you can find out big about asterisk there. in the video. I think the main thing is it's like it's just so
1: it is amazing how good these games are on a sort of like mathsy Euro gamey sort of quite chunky puzzly level. To let us forgive a lot of the other problems with them
0: yeah we've um we've been so so mean about dead reckoning i almost want to like describe how these games make you feel like you're constantly pulled in you're constantly given choices where you desperately want both things you can really express yourself in these these steffenfeld city games by like pursuing a strategy that is just your choice um you're often also allowed to take big risks like, Sevenfeld makes Euro games where you can just be like, ah, oh, this will probably work out, you know, yes. and, and sometimes it will, and sometimes you'll really back yourself into a corner. Um, They're much more opportunistic than a lot of Euro
1: games I've played. They're not quite as, you know, like sort of cutthroat and businessy as things like Brass Birmingham or Food Chain Magnate, which are games where it really feels no. like you're trying to seize something out from under your opponent, but they feel like the game is giving you opportunities, and you take those opportunities when they arrive for you, and they're not necessarily going to kneecap another player in the process.
0: Yeah. Uh, at the same time, these games, Steffenfeld famously, a bit of trivia for the podcast here. Steffenfeld, Feld, I believe, is a designer who creates his games like entirely in the abstract with no theme at all. It's just like he's German. So it's like, yeah, is, there's a, a track and then there will be dice and the dice you roll numbers and it's go It's like up he's down. in the room. Yeah, I do. <laughs> he, I know, the, Tom. That's just my impression. That's just amazing. That's just my talent as a broadcaster. Um, but yeah, these games are like totally themeless. Like you know, usually Euro games are themed around businesses because that is something that like you know, both Euro games and businesses are about managing resources and hopefully watching numbers go up. Um, Seven Bell games are not. Seven Bell games are just they're they're like. I would describe the City series as like mathematics in a trench coat, you know? <laughs> like, um, and what was really funny about playing these games for review is like, I was really excited to receive them, and we make fun of you for this in the video. I was really excited because it's like, oh my God, yes, four games that are all supposedly really good, two of which are, I've been out of print and I've been waiting for for like five years. Tom, come over, let's play them all back to back. And it's so surreal playing four games from the same designer back to back because you're like, it's like, it's, uh, this, is, this is an unfair analogy because we did have fun. But it's like that thing of you wake up from a nightmare and then the same thing happens again and you, you wake up from a nightmare. <laughs> like, because it's, but, but you know what I mean? But it's like, a fun nightmare. You,
1: it's a fun nightmare It's to be like it. a
0: dream. It's like waking up from a dream and being like, oh no, I'm still dreaming. But because so, as we went to write the review, it's like, hang on, so much of this the, these games have the same DNA. Mm. Like the same mechanics, the same, the same structure, the same, we have the same feelings on them. Like very bizarre and surreal to play them all in one week. Yes, absolutely,
1: and uh, rewarding as well because you can see the DNA of the, of the older games. You can see how they sort of keep this, these sort of core tenets intact, but twist and change over time in ways that you can really like i think you can very accurately work out what the feld for you might be
0: based on what <laughs> i thought you were going to say what the feld is going on <laughs> yeah you can do that too yeah uh so yeah that's uh, if you search for um, shut up and sit down city series on on youtube you can uh, you can watch tom and i lose our minds slightly and uh, do some shouting yeah uh, tom sprays me with water at some at one point spoilers um spoilers, there's some yeah, good gags good. in there good gags uh, thank you for listening to the Shut Up and Down podcast, everybody. Tom, uh what are you gonna do now? Uh I Like right, um, right now. When you well, when you when you walk away from your PC, um, what are you do you to Well if this was the Sims yes. and we finally finished the the, the the timer on the task that is record podcast, what would your Sims stand up and do next? Achieve toilet?